Remain standing, please, and let's take our Bibles up and open them to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. We are going to be focusing this morning on uh, the last oh half of this, maybe a little less than half, but I'm going to read the, the whole chapter here so that we have it all in our minds uh, as we get ready to come and consider it this morning. Mark chapter 13. Let's give heed to this reading. This is God's word to us this morning, people of God. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit." And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days." And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. And then this is our passage for this morning. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these 
things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for your grace in giving it to us. We pray, Lord, for this time now that we have in looking to this passage, we pray that you would help us to understand. We pray for he who speaks this morning that he would speak with clarity. We pray that as we hear this morning that we would hear with conviction, that we would hear uh, as those who have been given ears to hear by you, O Lord. And we pray that you would do that for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this morning, God willing, we will be wrapping up our look at chapter 13 of Mark's Gospel, the longest and one of the most difficult, as we've talked about, uh, most variously understood passages in uh, the Gospels. In the Gospel of Mark, certainly the longest of Jesus' teachings recorded. Remember that Jesus, upon leaving the temple for the last time uh, and being directed by one of his disciples to uh, reflect on the, the beauty and the glory of the temple there in Jerusalem, Jesus responded by pronouncing, as we read here, its imminent destruction in, with the most graphic and, as it turns out, historically accurate language. And he said, there will not be here left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And naturally, the disciples, upon hearing this earth-shattering, culture-shattering, religion-shattering pronouncement, they desire to know more about it and about the end of time as well, which to them, the, the destruction of such a central a formidable structure as the temple there in Jerusalem must surely indicate. And so as they gather on the, the Mount of Olives across the, from the, across the valley from Jerusalem there, they asked them about it. And we've seen that Jesus' answer then touches on both of those aspects that they ask about, the destruction of the temple and the ultimate end of all things with the return of Christ on the last day. And we might think that those two ideas, those two uh, activities, those actions, those events, uh, may not sound related, but they are. Uh, it's not as odd as it may sound that those would be related, because the two events have a, a certain connection. Uh, first, the, the God-ordained, judicial, uh, utter destruction of not just the temple, the physical temple, but along with it, the, the temple-centric 
religious system of Old Testament Judaism, the temple priesthood, the whole sacrificial system, the end of that uh, by the Roman armies led by Titus in 70 AD, uh, a, a figurative coming in judgment. And it's a picture of then the ultimate, universal, final coming in judgment when Christ returns on the last day, when Christ himself will be the judge, the jury, and the executor of God's judgment on evil and on sin and on sinners, and the blessed consummator of the work of redemption. So there is a connection between these two things, and that connection and the fact that both events are often spoken of using similar language in the Old Testament, uh, that prophetic terminology, and the fact that Jesus, in his answer here, is very clearly speaking of both of those events, well, that all makes for a tough time for Bible interpreters. And we talked about that over the past few weeks. And as we come to verse 24 and following, there are some Bible interpreters who say that these verses here continue to describe the events of 70 AD in prophetic apocalyptic language, uh, the, the coming of judgment upon the temple and the Jewish nation. But I think that what we see here, and many uh, commentators agree, uh, that now in these verses, from verse 24 and on, we see a change of, of focus, at least, in what Jesus is talking about. Now, though certainly we'll see here that, that the 70 AD events are still there, but now the, the primary referent in what Jesus is talking about is now the ultimate return of Christ, the coming of the Son of Man. And we're going to look at four different things this morning. First, uh, the first thing we're going to see is the time of the return of Christ. Now, you might think that odd since I've belabored the point that we don't know the time of the return of Christ. But Jesus gives us uh, some words here in verse uh, 24. Uh, when we get to the second half of verse 24, Jesus is going to lay down, as we used to say, uh, some pretty amazing thing. But first, he sets this in a, a time frame reference. And the time period that Jesus refers to here is there in verse 24. He says, but in those days after tribulation, or after that tribulation, so the time period that Jesus refers to here is those days. And, and those days is the time period, he shows, or says, that began with that tribulation, are the words that he uses. That is the, the tribulation. By the way, let me pause there for just a moment. We see the word tribulation here, and we've seen it a little earlier. And in our minds, our American uh, 20th, 21st century religious minds. We, we hear the word tribulation, especially when it's in the scripture, and we tend to, to put a capital T on it because we hear so much of the tribulation. But the word that's translated here uh, as tribulation is just a word that means distress. It means affliction. 
So it's not necessarily referring to a particular period of, of tribulation, a particular uh, manner of, of distress. But here Jesus is talking about that tribulation, and he's talking about that tribulation that arose around the events of the invasion of the Roman army and the attack on Jerusalem and the attack of, on the temple. So he's saying, and look at the text there, he says, but in those days, comma, after that tribulation, or in those days, that is, after that tribulation. And so the tribulation, he's speaking of that tribulation, he has been speaking of before in verse 19, when he talks about in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning. And we saw when we looked at that that he's speaking specifically there about the events that happened when the Romans attacked and besieged Jerusalem, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and all of the things that we have talked about. So the tribulation of verse 19 here in verse 24 is the distress of 70 AD and the things that happened. And those days are the days that began then but followed that, that have continued since then, that continue up until today. And those days are these days. They've continued up until now. And they will continue. Now, there is then that reference to A.D. 70, at least primarily. Remember, as we've, as we've gone through this, we've said that we always have to leave open this idea of, we've talked about the near and the far fulfillment of, of the same prophecy. That Jesus here is speaking of these two events in the, in the way that we've seen that he does. Two events separated in time by, well, 2,000 years so far. He speaks of them as a single event, which we've seen as the manner of, of prophetic utterances uh, throughout Scripture, this prophetic foreshortening. We talked about the mountain peaks that from far away look like they're about the same distance away, but when you get up to them, you see that they're very far apart. That's the idea here. And we always have to allow that as Jesus is speaking here, that he's speaking of this, in speaking of the same event, he's referring to both of them, especially since they're related, as we've seen. Uh, let me also point out then that, that the term those days is also an Old Testament expression uh, that points beyond the destruction of Jerusalem and to the events of the entire uh, church age, the gospel age, the age that we're living in now, the days of the presence of the Messiah that began with the coming of the Messiah and will continue until the return of the Messiah. Those are the those days. Those are the last days, days of which the Bible speaks and days in which we are living. And at some point in those days after that tribulation, which includes again our own time, the Son of Man will return. After the tribulation, after the, the trouble that always accompanies and continues to accompany the presence of evil alongside the presence of God's people, at some point during those days, this event will take place. 
Now, that is all very far from being specific, isn't it? But that's by God's design. That the Father himself is the keeper. He is the the keeper of the timing of all of these things. Down in verse 42 of our passage this morning, we'll, we'll see that Jesus says that no one, not the angels, not even the Son, but the Father alone knows the day and the hour. But when that day and that hour comes, whenever it may be, we will all experience, and here's the second thing we're going to see, we will all experience the announcement of the return of Christ. And though the preceding verses have referenced with some overlap, as we've seen, the the events of 70 A.D. and the end of time with the return of Christ, as we get here now into the second half of verse 24, it appears that Jesus is now focusing. Um, He is now referring specifically to the time of the end, the time of his return, what we call the parousia, And Jesus reports then on the announcement that will be made of his glorious return. Verse 24 says, But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Now, of course, Jesus, and to that we can add every other New Testament writer, speaks, writes of the fact of the physical future return of Christ throughout the pages of the New Testament. It is pretty much a constant theme in the New Testament. Almost every single book in the New Testament speaks about it. But here, Jesus speaks not so much about the the fact of it as of the announcement of it, the announcement of his return. And the words that he uses, the words I just read, the images are drawn entirely from prophecies of the Old Testament. Jesus doesn't make up his own imagery to, to describe this. He draws it all from the Old Testament to tell us what things will be like on that day. And he focuses, as he does so, as he chooses these scriptures, he focuses not on events here on earth, which are so subject to change, um, but to those things that appear to be most unchangeable. The heavens, uh, the heavenly realm, the sun and the moon and the stars that are to us so stable that yes, they move, but they move in recognized patterns and and are so stable, so regular in their movements that we are able to, to mark time by them. And Jesus says that the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. All pictures, all all prophetic utterances from the Old Testament that speak of upheaval, of cosmic cataclysms, the likes of which we have never seen. 
except in sort of temporary, localized situations. A solar eclipse. The sun stops shining for a moment. Lunar eclipses. The moon loses its, its light. Shooting stars, falling stars, we call them. All manner of celestial phenomenon um, Jesus uses here. And, and think of, of this, because the way Jesus speaks of them is he speaks of all of those things to the nth degree, all happening at the same time. And, you know, a solar eclipse and a lunar eclipse, it's physically impossible for those to happen at the same time. But they will, because they won't be mere eclipses. The sun will stop giving its light. The moon will stop giving its light. Well, if the sun stops giving its light, the moon doesn't have any light to give. Now, the stars will fall. All, all occurring at one time and all over the earth at one time. This passage, this language that Jesus uses echoes, um, for an example, there are several passages that it echoes, but Isaiah 13.10. In a passage there in Isaiah 13 that speaks also of a first a local judgment and then expands that to a final, uh, speaking of the final judgment, much as we've, we've seen here. And it describes the time of that final judgment by saying, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be, be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Similar language. So Isaiah and Jesus both describing the announcement of the return of of the Son of Man, the return of Christ. The mighty God who stepped forth in the creation to cause the sun and the moon to shine will step forth again and they will cease to shine. Creation, which he sustains, will begin to come apart at his will. That's another Old Testament theme that you find in Judges 5 and Amos 1 and Habakkuk 3. Psalm 77 speaks of, of that disillusionment as well as 2 Peter in the New Testament. Now, notice this. I didn't say that this is the sign of his return, but the announcement of his return. See, these things that Jesus is talking about here are not signs of his coming. When we think of signs, we typically think uh, that, that those will take place at some distance but will point towards something uh, distant from the actual event. But this is the second coming that we're reading about. The ultimate harbinger of the end of the age. These cosmic upheavals, beloved, are not indicators of the soon coming of the end. But this is the end that it's describing. I mentioned 2 Peter. 2 Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And these things that we read about in Mark 13 are the opening volleys of that process. 
And we can be sure of that because of verse 26. Verse 26 says, And then, not later, but then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. This is one event. We read from Daniel 7 this morning of the the presentation and the, the enthronement of the Son of Man. I saw in the night visions, we read, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This passage from Daniel stands behind these words in Mark 13. And Jesus says they will, then they will see, when all of this starts to happen, at that point they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. It's interesting. I, I, lately I see every day on commercial, a, a tel, uh, on television, a commercial for a, a book on the end times that's, I think, just coming out. And it begins by explaining how people are going to be taken by surprise and, and awestruck and record now on their cell phones. Millions of people just disappearing. You, you know the left behind stories. This is sort of the new iteration of that. People just disappearing having, and, and the people having no clue what has happened. And it just throws them into turmoil. We used to refer to that as the secret rapture. Because the only ones who know about it, to know what's going on, are the ones to whom it happens. But the Bible knows nothing of a secret rapture as it's described. You know, the classic text on the return of Christ and the rapture is 1 Thessalonians 4. that says this, that, that the Lord will descend with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Hardly the, the language of a secret snatching away. Yes, Jesus will come as he promised. Yes, he will come as a surprise, as a thief in the night, when people are, like in the days of Noah, they are going on about their business, when people are living their lives and, and climbing their ladders and breaking their ceilings. Yes, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then, 1 Thessalonians says that then we who are alive will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. By the way, that word caught up together in the the Latin is the word where we get the word rapture from. But beloved, it will be anything but silent. It will be anything but a secret. And along with that, the sun will be darkened. The moon will be darkened. The stars will begin to fall from heaven when the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And people, this morning, make no mistake, it is coming. It will come. 
as the prophet Joel wrote, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And all will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. According to Acts 1.11, he was taken up in the clouds. He's going to come the same way. And the only way to be ready for that day is to do what Joel wrote, what we just read, to call on the name of the Lord, to call on the name of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Before this time comes, this announcement comes, the announcement that comes with these great cataclysmic events. But that day will come, and this is the the opening to it. And, And as part of the activities on that day, Jesus goes on, and this is our third point, to say that there will be a gathering of God's elect. Verse 27 says, And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. You know, very often when we read of the, the day of the Lord that's coming, the return of Christ that's coming, the, the focus on what's called in the Old Testament the great and terrible day of the, of the Lord, very often the focus is on the great and terrible part, the, the judgment that is coming, the judgment that will be executed when Christ returns by Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.3 says, While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. And for the unbeliever, there is nothing to soften that conception to be found in the Bible as long as one remains an unbeliever. Listen to Revelation 6. Verse 15 and following. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountain, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? That is why, unbeliever, it is so important to flee from that wrath and to the grace and the mercy of God in Christ. Because that day is coming. But for believers, the focus will not be on that. The focus will be on the fact that that day will be a day of joy unspeakable and full of glory. Because, as we also read in 1 Thessalonians 4, the dead in Christ will rise. And then those who are alive will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will be with Him forever. Imagine the scene, if you will, if you can. As the sun and the moon are turned off and the stars begin to fall, The voice of the Creator will be heard and the shout of the archangel accompanied by the trumpet of God. And at the word of God, every believer who has ever lived and died in Christ will be raised from the dead. 
the power of Almighty God who created all things will search the earth and under the earth and in the water and in the sky, everywhere on earth, wherever they might be, in whatever state of disillusion they might be. And they will be raised from the dead, reunited with their spirits and changed from mortal to immortal, the corruptible putting on incorruptibility. And just as Paul wrote in those words in 1 Thessalonians, he said that that he wrote them so believers would not be uninformed about those who had died. So here, uh, Jesus might have said, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be troubled about those who are long since dead, who have been lost at sea, their bodies eaten by fish, those who have been burned intentionally or unintentionally, those who have been killed in fires and explosions or any other means of the dissolution of the body. Jesus is saying, don't be worried about that. I know that's a question that, that bothers some people. I get asked questions about that. But beloved, listen to this. If God can speak the universe into existence and work all things according to the counsel of his will, I think he can find all of your pieces on the last day. And Jesus gives us this precious promise in verse 27 that he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. You see that he uses his angels in this work. They will gather his elect from wherever they might be, from the four winds, That's north, east, south, and west, wherever they may be, from the ends of the earth, wherever on this planet they may be, in whatever condition they may be, and even, he says, to the ends of heaven. Now, that's a figure of speech, obviously, to go with with the ends of the earth, ends of the earth to the end of heaven to show us that wherever it is. But as I looked at that this week, I thought, you know, if man continues... Uh, to explore space, and we have plans to go to Mars and beyond if the Lord tarries, sooner or later, we're going to lose someone in space. It's inevitable. But you know what? Even that person who floats through the cosmos until Christ returns, even he will not miss being gathered on that day to the ends of heaven. God will gather his elect. People ask how God is able to do that. But beloved faith, I think, rather rejoices that he will do that rather than worry about how he will do it. Jesus then and this brings us to our fourth point, comes to the end, really, of of his answer. He's now basically answered the disciples' questions, and now he gives them exhortations to watchfulness. He's answered, as far as he's going to answer, their questions, but he ends now with a pair of exhortations of, of application here. And we can look at these and learn from them very quickly 
two exhortations that each are connected with an illustration, a parable, if you will. And as this whole discourse has moved between this near and far fulfillment of Jesus' words, what we see here in these two illustrations, these two exhortations, is really the first of the exhortations seems to be focused on that near fulfillment, and the second one on the far fulfillment. Let's, let's look at them and see how that works. First, the, the near one is in verses 28 through 31, and we'll call it the, the exhortation regarding the fig tree. Uh, Verse 28 speaks of a fig tree. Jesus says, from the fig tree, learn its lessons. This isn't the first time we've heard of a fig tree in in sort of this general area of of Jesus' ministry here in the the Passion Week. Remember, this is still Tuesday as we've been kind of uh, marking off the days. This is the end of Tuesday. Uh, And earlier, the day before, Jesus had cursed a fig tree. Remember that? which completely withered away from the roots overnight. And he did that, as we saw, as a picture of the coming destruction of the temple that Jesus has been announcing and talking about, and of the entire temple system. So now it makes sense, then, that this first exhortation specifically focuses on those events. So here Jesus returns to that that ubiquitous plant there in the the area of Israel, to exhort his disciples. Look at verse 28. He says, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And the lesson is this. That just as the branches of, of, a, of a fig tree soften up as they fill with sap um, and as the leaves grow on it, that that's an indication to them who knew fig trees very well, it's an indication that summer is right around the corner. But then in verse 29, it says, So also, in the same way, and, and when these things that Jesus had descri- has described in verses 5 through 23 And especially in verses 14 through 23, the abomination of desolation, which results from this unrest with Rome. He says, when these things happen, know that the judgment of God upon the Jews here for their continued rejection of Christ and the end of the the temple system, the end of that temple-centric expression of the kingdom of God that has been since the temple was originally built, since the tabernacle was constructed, that that is done, that, that God in his judgment on that is near at the very gates. It is over. We talked about that earlier, that the time of the temple is over. Verse 30 brings to us a verse that's caused no end of trouble for the understanding of Jesus' words here. Because in verse 30, he says, Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. I'll tell you, there have been interpretive gymnastics of amazing kinds to try to interpret that statement by Jesus in a way that allows for this first exhortation to be understood as speaking of the last day. 
That somehow this generation will not pass away until all of these things, that is everything up until the very end, till the return of Christ, until that takes place. And the, the problem has been, how do you do that? If we see Jesus in this whole discourse here actually answering the question that his disciples asked him while still recognizing this this telescoping prophetic uh, method, the near and the far fulfillments, if we understand that Jesus was answering the question of the disciples, we can understand that Jesus is saying in this first exhortation, remember we have a second one to deal with, uh, that this first exhortation is just what it sounds like it's saying that the destruction of the temple, that the accompanying tribulation, that those things will take place during, Jesus is saying, this generation that was alive when he said the words. So that when you read, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place, it means just what you would think it meant. That the generation that was alive when he said these things would still be alive when this took place. And the this in this first, ex, this first exhortation is the events or are the events of 70 A.D. And guess what? About 36 years after Jesus spoke these words, the general, Roman general Titus strode into the temple and desecrated it and then raised it to the ground, which is how it remains to this day. And then Jesus reminds his disciples that though all of these things are passing away, though all of this is happening, all things passing away, his words are sure. They are eternal. They are reliable. They are the words of life. Verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. And what good news that is, beloved. Well, that's the first exhortation. Now we have the second one. And we'll call it the return of the master to his house. And it's here in verses 32 through 37. And in these verses, there is really no controversy that Jesus is now speaking clearly of what we call the parousia, the second coming, the return of Christ, the return of the Son of God. And Jesus begins here with a verse that Bible-believing Christians have rightly used to put down any prediction concerning the time of Christ's return. Jesus himself, in verse 32, says that no one knows when that will happen. But concerning that day or that hour, he says, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And if the angels don't know it, and if Jesus doesn't know it, Guess what? You don't know it. I don't know it. They, whoever they may be making the predictions, they don't know it. No matter how carefully they parse the numeric value of the letters of certain passages in the Old Testament, no matter how closely they look at the the Mayan calendar, I think it was, they don't know. And so Jesus is really returning here to where he began. When people claiming to know the time or to be the Christ, when you see wars and rumors of wars and experience earthquakes and famines and like that, don't worry. And if you hear of of people saying, well, there's the Christ, there he is, there's the Messiah, or there he is over there, don't believe it. 
And as he started, he ends with exhortations, as we see in verse 33, to be on guard. He did that at the beginning, the first thing that he said to his disciples when he answered the question. He said, see to it that no one leads you astray. Be on guard. Be alert. Be awake. Don't be taken in. Don't be distracted. Be in a state of readiness. Be expecting his return. Be waiting for his return. Be praying for his return. But don't be predicting when his return is going to be. Continue to live in the pursuit of the life that he has given you to live. Showing forth the love of Christ. Giving an answer to anyone who asks you concerning the hope that is within you. Concerning his return. Sharing the hope of the gospel with the lost. Do that because you don't know the time. Peter tells us that that Jesus' delay in his coming is a cause for scoffers to become emboldened. Where is the promise of his coming? Things have continued the way they've always been. And that's for unbelievers, but for Christians, his delay often causes them, us, to become complacent. To think sort of what the unbelievers think that Peter talked about. To think, is he really coming? Do I need to live as if he's really coming? Jesus wants to guard us from that complacency here. Uh, To that end, he gives them a parable in verse 34. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. That's really a very simple parable, isn't it? You understand it without me even saying anything. A very simple yet important application that Jesus gives. Verse 35, he says, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Stay awake, stay awake. This last exhortation is bracketed by the command to stay awake. Christian, this is what we should take away from the Olivet Discourse, Mark 13. This is the point of Jesus' teaching for us today. The events of 70 A.D. are in the past. We can learn from them. We can't react to them. They're done. But we live now in the light of the future and certain return of the Son of Man, the return of Christ. And in these final verses, we're again confronted with the fact that we don't know when the master of the house will come. We don't know the time. And as in the parable, he has left his servants each with his work to do. There's only one specifically mentioned, the work that he was given to do. That's the doorkeeper, and his job was to stay awake. Our focus, beloved, this morning is to be about the work that God has given us to do. In light of the fact that we know he's coming, we know these things are coming, but our focus is to be about the business of the church, about the business of the Christian life. 
The danger is that he comes suddenly and finds you asleep. That's what we want to avoid. The danger is not doing the work he's called us to do. Vigilance is the order of the day for us as God's people. And Jesus' final words there in verse 37 add a note of clarity as Jesus applies his words and particularly his exhortations to wakefulness, to watchfulness, to everyone. Not just the four who asked them this question at the beginning of the chapter. Not just the twelve who were certainly listening to the answer that he gave. But Jesus says, what I say to you, I say to all. Including all of us here this morning. And what he says is, stay awake. Let us do that. Let's pray. Father, we come to you once again and we thank you for your word and we thank you for this time. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to, Lord, as we used to say, occupy until you come. We pray that you would help us to not be distracted, not be caught up in things that are unproductive, but in the light of the knowledge of your coming, that we might do the work that you've given us to do, that we might stay awake and be watching for you, be waiting for you, Lord, be, be prayerfully expecting uh, your return, that we might, with the saints at the end of this precious book, say, even so, come, Lord Jesus, help us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.